Welcome to Madam's Hoes and Gigolos, a podcast about the history of sex work and the historical events surrounding the sexual revolutions. I'm your host, Heather, and with me is my friend, Connor. Together, we've created a bi-weekly podcast discussing all topics in regards to history and sex. In honor of February being Black History Month, we wanted to highlight the world's first Black superstar, Josephine Baker, international vaudeville entertainer, World War II spy, and civil rights activist. I collected my information about Josephine from the power of Google and also reading The Many Faces of Josephine Baker by Peggy Caravantes. Josephine's early years are hard to follow. There are many versions of her life. When Josephine turned 19, she had left for France and had destroyed old pictures or anything that reminded her of growing up and growing up poor. She started creating and romanticizing versions of her childhood years. And when asked by a reporter about these embellishments, she just said, she didn't lie, she just improvised on life. I tried to find the most accurate information possible. She was a French entertainer, often doing mostly new dances, almost exotic like Mata Hari. Trigger warning, animal abuse, child abuse, domestic abuse, and miscarriage. She was born Frida Josephine McDonald on June 3, 1906 in St. Louis, Missouri. Josephine's birth is a start of information conflicting. Her mother, Carrie McDonald, was adopted as a child by former slaves of African and Native American descent, and Carrie was admitted to an exclusively white and female hospital on May 3, 1906. She was discharged on June 17th, her baby, Frida J. McDonald, having been born two weeks earlier. The fact that her mother, who was black, stayed for six weeks at a hospital in the segregated Midwest when black women would customarily have been having their babies at home with the help of a midwife was completely unthinkable. The father was identified on the birth certificate as EDW, so it's suspected that Josephine's father was a white man. Around the time McDonald got pregnant, she had been working for a German family. It's suspected that he must have gotten her into the hospital and paid to keep her there all those weeks. Josephine's birth was registered by the head of the hospital at a time when most black births were not registered. Josephine's biological dad had never been revealed. Her mother let people believe Eddie Carson was her father, but Josephine and her family all suspected her biological father was white. Eddie was the drummer of a vaudeville band. The two told the story of dating about a year before Josephine was born. However, Josephine was not given his last name at birth. 16 months later, Richard, Josephine's little brother was born. Shortly after the birth of Richard, Eddie had deserted the family, leaving Carrie to run a household and struggle for money. Carrie married again a couple years later, this time to a guy named Arthur Martin. He was a factory worker who was moody and quick-tempered and often found himself out of a job because of it. Carrie did laundry for work inside their home to support the family since Arthur was so inconsistent with his work. For a short time, Josephine had lived with her grandmother, and the financial strain of having another mouth to feed was just too hard on her mother and on Arthur. Now, Josephine loved it, and it was there that she found her love to sing and dance. One day she was walking home from church, and Josephine stepped on a rusty nail, and it got a nasty infection. The doctor suggested amputating her leg, but Josephine freaked out, worried that she'd never sing or dance again. And justifiably so. I don't think I would want them amputating my leg either abscesses are nasty yeah my daughter just had had one in her face last month and we had to go in every other day and get it drained Ugh. luckily nobody recommended amputating her face oh, oh. The, but the, the doctor ended up draining the abscess and the wound eventually healed thank goodness and uh, josephine had to move back home with her impoverished mother her mother told her that since she was the oldest she had to find a job to help support the family. So at seven years old, Josephine started job hunting. What were you doing at seven years old? Not working. Probably Not... riding my bike. I, I, I don't even... Oh my gosh. I couldn't even imagine having that responsibility at seven years old. Josephine did all kinds of odd jobs from sweeping steps, shoveling snow. And then Carrie had made arrangements with Mrs. Kaiser, who was a widow in the neighborhood. Mrs. Kaiser agreed that she would provide clothes and food for the child in exchange for work. At this time, Missouri had compulsory education laws. However, Josephine attended school as little as legally possible. 
Therefore, she never learned to read. So Josephine was awake at 5 a.m. to get her chores done first, then school, and her chores ended around 10 p.m. Here she'd eat cold potatoes for breakfast. She slept in a basement in a box with Mrs. Kaiser's dog that gave her fleas. Josephine had a friend, and this friend's name was Tiny Tim, and he was a white rooster. Josephine would share her food with the rooster, and she would cuddle with him at night. One day, Mrs. Kaiser noticed Tiny Tim fattening up, so she told Josephine to kill it and made Josephine, at seven years old, cut his neck with scissors. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, that's to have to kill, like, your only friend in the in the basement there. Right. At this point, like, I think of, of Wilson from Castaway, where you make that friend, because she didn't have any... People, right. Right, that was her only friend, and now she's being forced to cut its neck and kill it? Yeah. So, with exhaustion starting to set in with the child, she was appearing thinner and thinner, and had developed a chronic raspy cough. She forgot that she left the pot of boiling water for the dishes... The pot boiled over on the stove, and Mrs. Kaiser took Josephine's hand and plunged it into the pot, burning it. She said that she screamed so loud that the neighbors could hear it, and the next thing, she woke up in the hospital. Josephine was sent off to work for another couple, the Masons. They were nice to her, provided for her. Here she was able to create a stage and put on performances. Mrs. Mason encouraged it by giving her old clothes and hats with fancy feathers. For several nights, though, Josephine would hear heavy breathing in her room while she was asleep. She had told Mrs. Mason, and she had said, when you hear it, call for me. That night, Josephine heard it again, but this time felt something trying to get in bed with her. She screamed, and Mr. Mason was found trying to get into bed with Josephine. Jesus. Josephine was sent away. Her mother blamed her for being fired, the money being more important than her daughter's safety. Josephine thought she was being punished because she was scared. She had zero idea of what was happening. Traumatized by her experience of working in people's homes, Josephine got together with other kids her age, and they'd go to white neighborhoods offering to work or the rail yards looking for coal to sell. Josephine moved back in with her grandmother and Aunt Elvira. Shortly after she moved in with them, Josephine was woken up by her grandmother. Her aunt was dying, and she was instructed to get her mother. By the time Josephine arrived, Elvira had already passed. She left behind a small pension for her grandmother, and she moved in with Josephine's family. They moved into a one-room shack in a boxcar town. What exactly is a boxcar town? That was the name of the, the area because they took all the boxcars from the, tr- the rail stations and they made them into homes. Like little tiny homes? Yeah, so it was kind of like a little sub-area, like where we live and we have little little town names that was their name for their town because that's what they made the homes out of were old train box cars yeah interesting that we kind of today that's very popular to have like these tiny homes it, it reminds me almost of in the movie uh, ready player one how they have like these like trailers that are like stacked up and people right live i know like being in downtown la i see a lot of like kind of those box car looking those things that mm-hmm. they're making to help house the homeless so I'm thinking it was something along that lines where they take the old boxcars and they get converted. Yeah, okay. So what were the living conditions in these boxcars? There were holes in the floorboards, so the family would flatten out tin cans and nail them to keep the, keep the rats out. Newspapers would be put in the holes in the walls to keep in the heat. So a family of six in this one little shack, Josephine had two puppies that would keep her warm. In July of 1917, the East St. Louis riots occurred. And when the aluminum oil company and the American Steel and Wire Company went on strike, factories hired black workers and racial tensions grew. Can you even imagine the times are so bad, people are losing their jobs, black people for the first time are able to get jobs, and that grows even more resentment because they're taking our jobs. Like that's, I feel like that's even today they're taking our jobs as a... It's terrible that this is how they, they had to live, even... Even after when the Great Depression had hit and nobody could find jobs, it was certainly harder for people of color to find jobs after because if a white person couldn't get a job, certainly a person of color who was obviously getting paid lower wages couldn't find that job either. Yeah, it's hard to compete with that. On July 2nd, a mob of 25 white men attacked every single black person that they encountered with crowds encouraging the rioters. 
200 boxcars were set on fire. These were people's homes. And as black men, women, and children ran from the scene, white men would club them, shoot them, and a few were even lynched. It's guesstimated that there were anywhere between 48 and 200 fatalities in the worst case of labor-related violence in the 20th century American history. So they have this labeled as a riot, but I'm going to call that bullshit and call this a massacre. What would make it a riot? Is that just kind of where you're going in and, and shaking up a political system? I I would think that the the riots, you know, they came in, I, but I, from our experience where we live and our experience witnessing riots happen, especially in the last year or even when we were younger, there weren't there weren't murders. Right. They went in murdering women, men, and children of color. They were targeted. I don't think this was a riot. These weren't people burning buildings because they were mad. These were people killing other people because they were mad. And so I feel like when they say this was a riot, it downplays the severity and mm-hmm. how grotesque this was in history. And the intention. Yeah, you're right. Like riots that we've seen are people going in and either trashing a store or, or setting a car on fire and things that, you know, not saying that we condone that kind of behavior, but you're, you're using that kind of destruction to send a message versus here when you've got 25 people chasing a black man to club him to death. Right. Or even lynching. Lynching is, oh, it's just disgusting. And so for it to go down in history books as a riot, I look at that as that, that's a problem. It is. Yeah. Uh, Luckily, Josephine and her family, they were able to flee and they all huddled in the bushes and trees to hide. Their house was completely destroyed in that massacre. They've lost everything. And I'll add for the animal lovers here that Josephine refused to let her puppies go, and therefore she went in and rescued them. She was 11 years old. I love that 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 caring heart of Josephine still holding on and rescuing her dogs as the world she knows is being stripped from her. I mean, I could only imagine what she saw at 11. Her, her previous pet, remember she had to kill Tiny Tim, Tiny the Tim. rooster, and these... Dogs were the only thing that were keeping her warm at night in this boxcar. Right. I I mean, the, just the level of trauma. Yeah. At 13, she got a job as a waitress at the Old Chauffeur's Club. It was a place for jazz musicians to hang out. Here she waited tables and washed dishes for $3 a week. At 13, Josephine met 25-year-old steel worker named Willie Wells. She had zero experience with men. Willie had proposed, and even with the consent of Carrie, the marriage would not be legal because with parental consent, the legal age was 15. So even if the marriage wasn't legally binding, they still celebrated the union with a pork roast and baked macaroni. Classy. So Josephine got married at 13 to a 25-year-old man. Yeah, and her mom consented to it. Her mom consented to it. Josephine played the role of housewife, not working and depending on her husband who was struggling to make ends meet. She was thought to be pregnant, though she never confirmed because she would knit baby clothes and bought a wooden bassinet. One night, Willie and Josephine got into a fight. He started to become violent and Josephine shattered a bottle and struck Willie with it, cutting over his eye. There was blood and Willie was left never seen again. She really scared this guy. Well, have you Good. ever had like a cut in your face? Because you tend to bleed more because the capillaries. No, um, maybe. I remember not, one time. Like that. I remember one time I was ice skating with my ex-husband and my daughter. And um, he 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 was drinking before we went ice skating. And my ex-daughter was like three. Or, my ex, my daughter was like <laughs> three. And he went onto the ice. And all I heard was thud. And I turned around and he had hit the ice. And he went and he sat down because he said he wasn't feeling well. And his beanie was saturated with blood because uh. over his eye, he had this cut and it was just bleeding profusely. So we had to take my daughter to my parents and rush him to the hospital so he could get stitches. And I mean, a little fun fact is I didn't have Kleenex in my car. I only had a tampon. So he had to hold a tampon to his eye. I'm sure he would love that. And um, he had to get stitches. And then the next day was his mom's wedding. So his eye was was bruised and he had fresh stitches and he had to walk his mom down the aisle. Wow. Hope people didn't think that you had. uh... Oh, no. When he was giving his speech to his mother, he had said, I hit him. Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I it it didn't look as bad as it did when it was all cleaned up, uh-huh. but it bled profusely because cuts in your face just bleed more. Yeah. Josephine stopped knitting and went back to the old chauffeur's club. The status of her possible pregnancy is unknown. Nobody can confirm if she was pregnant or if she had a miscarriage. On Sundays, Josephine would attend shows at the Booker T. Washington Theater. She saw the vaudeville show Dixie Steppers so many times that she had the dialogue and dance steps memorized. She loved the stage and was convinced that she was going to work on it. So at 13, she had tricked the stage security guard and managed to hustle herself into an audition with the show director. She got hired on the spot and played the role of Cupid in Romeo and Juliet. Tied to a rope, wearing pink tights, skimpy costume, and some wings, she was hoisted in the air and flying. Her wings got caught in the backdrop of the theater, and she was stuck, flying in circles, flailing her arms. The more she tried to escape, the worse she got. The audience laughed, but Josephine was embarrassed and certain she was going to be fired. But just the opposite happened. The director told her to keep the same act. One day, Clara Smith was coming to the theater. She was an American blues singer dubbed the Queen of Moaners. Josephine paid 25 cents a mission and sat in the front row and watched Clara perform. She then snuck backstage. She saw Clara, who had spilled food on her white costume. Josephine, who had spent her childhood doing laundry, found water, washed the dress, and pressed it in between two towels. She returned the costume, and Clara paid her a dollar and offered her a job as a dresser, offering her $10 a week plus travel. 13-year-old Josephine saw it as her way to escape St. Louis, and she jumped on the opportunity. She left home, only telling her younger sister. So we're watching Josephine Baker now go from earning $3 a week to $10 a week, which is a huge increase. Plus travel. Yeah. Now she gets to travel. So as, as a young person, as you know, 13 years old, as a person of color, and like way back then, like that's, that was a decent wage, I guess. Right, so she obviously had dropped out of school. Okay, um, yeah, when she made it to Philadelphia, Josephine was once again struck by good luck and another's misfortune. Fifteen minutes before showtime, a chorus girl had hurt herself and couldn't perform. Josephine knew the dance moves, so she begged the director to let her fill in, and he obliged. But the costume didn't fit her, so when she walked out on stage, the audience laughed, and Josephine would make funny faces, she crossed her eyes in a silly grin, and the audience loved it. Once again, a bad situation, got her another job. This seems to me like in those movies where something goes terribly wrong and uh, people start laughing and you just kind of go with it. I, I feel like I've seen that so many times and I guess she might have been the original person to have that happen. Where I feel like when it's just fate, it's just fate. And when this is your destiny, no matter what happens, it's supposed to happen for you. And in fact, if when we've looked up her dancing, the the crossed eyes and everything, it seems to become her signature move, dancing silly and making silly faces as she's doing her dance moves. And where does that come from? Does that come from like comedic timing or just knowing what's funny or just knowing how to improvise? I feel like it comes from a little comedic timing. And then she also learned because she got so many positive reactions when she was, when these things were happening, when things were going wrong. And she tried to improvise by making these, these faces that she got such a positive response from the audience. She just continued to do it and incorporate it throughout all her other dances. Yeah, I think that just ultimately comes down to confidence, right? So you can either like, oh my gosh, they hate me, hang your head in shame and walk off the stage uh, as a failure. Or uh, if they're laughing at you uh, because of something that you didn't mean to do, you cross your eyes, you make a face and a big grin. And now you're like, hey, you know what? You're laughing with me because right. I'm, I'm controlling. The taking You're taking thing. your control back. She's, she's owning it. Good for you, Josephine. Take that control back. Yeah, well, she continued to do that. She worked for Clara, who had given Josephine alphabet books in an attempt to help her to learn how to read. And she started to be able to write letters. During this time, few hotels were open to blacks because of segregation laws. Oftentimes, the troupe would share beds in boarding houses. Clara and Josephine became lovers. Josephine will have multiple women lovers throughout her life. Frida Kahlo being another famous lover later in her life. At 15, she married Willie Baker, taking her husband's last name and dropping her first name, becoming Josephine Baker. Okay, so before that, she was Frida Josephine McDonald. She dropped the McDonald, dropped the Frida. Now she's just Josephine. 
And she created her stage name. And a whole new identity. He was a 23-year-old former jockey who worked as a porter on Pullman cars. Willie's parents did not approve of Josephine, so they eloped. Baker began to perform with the African-American theater troupe. Her career began with blackface comedy at local clubs. Hold on a second. 15 years old. Mm-hmm. On her second marriage? Yes. Okay. I think this is a time where people grew up quicker and marriage was a goal. And I, six, being, being married at 16 wasn't uncommon in these times. And families being so poor, it was just cheaper to marry her off to another family so they didn't have to take care of them. And I think this was actually the norm yeah. for this era. Okay, I'm 40 and I'm supposed to be on my third wife by now. And like, what have I been doing with my life? I'm 41, and I've only been married and divorced once, so. Okay. She auditioned for the show in Philadelphia, but overheard she was too small and too dark and wasn't offered the role. She would follow the show's performances, and when they went up to New York, she left her husband, Willie, and never returned. She slept on benches for a couple nights, and when she learned the show was going to do a traveling troupe, she was encouraged to audition by a friend. She ended up getting the job, paying $30 a week. The show opened in Chicago. She was an audience favorite, but the rest of the chorus girls hated her. Of course. Right? Who wants this new person to come in and become the favorite? They moved all possessions out of her their shared dressing room, dumping them in the hallway. Josephine wouldn't let this deter her. She just got dressed in the restrooms. The original troupe that Josephine auditioned for had decided to travel and had invited the once- too thin and too dark Josephine to join them. Okay, so this isn't the same group. This is the, No, this uh, was a this was just a se- a part that separated and they were going to travel, but because the other show wasn't doing well, they decided to travel and then told Josephine who they once rejected but saw was doing well with mm-hmm. the other traveling troupe, "Hey, come join us." Okay. The troupe stopped in St. Louis and Josephine went to see her family. She saw the conditions they were living in, no electricity and a bucket in the bathroom. Suddenly, by the conditions of her family, she offered to send $50 a month to help with their care. She was never able to see him again for 14 years, but maintained to send them money and promised to send them even more. So at this point, she's getting $30 a week, so about $120 a month. So she's spending almost half of that to go send into her family to take care of them that she can't even see for 14 years. Josephine was invited to appear in the Plantation Theater restaurant in Harlem, and this is the birthplace of many stars. It was a lavish place with elegant decor, starched tablecloths, and French-speaking waiters wearing tuxedos. Ethel Waters was the house singer, and after watching Ethel sing for months, she learned Ethel's signature song, Dinah, and decided she wanted to get out of comedy and start singing. Once again, fate intervened, and Ethel had come down with laryngitis. Josephine, knowing her songs, knocked on the director's door and asked if she could sing for him. He was impressed enough to allow her to fill in for Ethel. The audience loved her and would start sending her roses after the shows. Josephine couldn't read the cards because she couldn't read, and the chorus girls just laughed and ridiculed her for being illiterate. What bitches? Seriously. (laughs) She's still successful, and uh, and they're, they're giving her a hard time still. Finally, a girl had explained the significance of the flowers, and she read her the card. The message was signed Henry and to meet her at the stage door. So Josephine did and started to learn that Henry was a white man. She was smitten with Henry, but that came to an end when his parents refused to meet her. She knew that they wouldn't be able to marry, so she planned her next move, which just so happened to be with a socialite developing an all-black review in Paris. Paris didn't have the segregation laws that America had. Over there, Josephine as a black woman would have more freedom there than she would have in her native country. She was offered $150 a week to be in the chorus line. Josephine wanted to sing, and she was unsure of Paris. What if she didn't like it? How would she get home? She was also unsure if the rumors were true that black people were accepted in France. Josephine knew that a singer was needed for the show, and she had asked for that part. She was turned down, but they offered her $250 a week to be a comedic act in the show instead. So Josephine accepted and at 19 left for Paris. So she was born in 1906. By 19, we're looking at 1925 now. And to be getting 250 a week, I feel like in the mid-90s, 
I was earning like 150 a week. And so this is some really good pay for that time. Definitely for that time. But even being by 19, married twice, living and then getting to travel as much as she was, like she's living a full life at 19. 250 a week still sounds, uh, I feel like a lot of people are still kind of making that these days. Yeah, well, I, what would that break down to? Uh, well, I guess if you divide uh, 250 by right. 20 hours a week, that, that might be minimum wage. That's, that's a good part-time job wage. It was enough for her to support her family or send the $50 a month for her family. Yeah, sure. She, she's making $1,000 a month. $50 a month is, uh, at this point, not as much, huh? No, no. Inflation is definitely... I wonder what the cost of living for Paris was too at the time. Yeah. Well, I just mean even even for them, 250 a week, she's making over $1,000 a month. And so for that kind of wage to send 50 bucks is uh, much more manageable. Right. I'm sure she even probably tried to send more. Her boat docked and the troop took a train to Paris on September 22nd, 1925. Josephine and her other cast members were astonished at the fact that they could sit anywhere. There were no segregation laws in Europe that, like they were accustomed to. Can you even imagine? They started to work endless hours rehearsing for the Revue Negres. But it wasn't what people had expected. The costumes, the singing, and the dancing were different than what was successful in Paris. Oh. The American culture was more conservative than France, who had a stage performances nightly, such as Moulin Rouge and the Folies Bergère. Right. So Jacques Charles was brought in who was a choreographer for Moulin Rouge. He didn't know English and the cast didn't know French, but he taught Josephine what would become one of the most famous dances, the Danse Sauvage, also known as the Wild Dance. This dance involved her body shaking and moving and her stomach rotating and her hips, moves that were eventually emulated by Shakira, J-Lo, and most notably, Beyonce. Cool. Beyonce's 2006 music video, Deja Vu, was actually a tribute to Josephine and her wild dance moves. And just like the Parisians with Josephine, some of the audience would stomp off when they saw her suggestive dance moves and others returned. You know, we, we actually just watched uh, a clip of Beyonce's Deja Vu music video after watching clips of Josephine Baker dancing, and it's definitely a tribute. I never would have known that. Yeah, she she even did um, a tribute to um, for Josephine Baker at the hundred hundred year anniversary for her. Cool. Okay, so she was born in nineteen oh six. Was that like in two thousand six? Yeah. Cool. So just like Josephine and having some of the audience stomp out, Beyonce had some problems with with some fans as fans petitioned Columbia Record, which was her label, to pull the video because the dance moves in this video were erratic confusing and alarming at times. Well, we saw them and they are very weird and they are kind of confusing, but I didn't think that it was inappropriate at all. Like it wasn't even like crazy sexual. It was just kind of like spastic. If you knew the backstory, you would understand where these dance moves were coming from. But I also remember vaguely about Beyonce in a baby boy video where she was doing a dance and people complained that it was too suggestive and it looked like it was a stripper dance when in reality it was actually an African fertility dance. And if we want to take it all the way back, fertility dances were the original strip dance. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was going to say that they're all sexy dances anyway. Right, but I mean, for people to say that they were erratic and confusing, but not know the history behind it. But people even complain more about the sexual theme but then they also complained about the non-existent sexual chemistry between Jay-Z and Beyonce. They definitely have chemistry, but I guess it wasn't that visible in the video. I thought it was visible. I thought it was hot. I mean, she was straddling and bending on him. I mean, she was definitely... I, I liked the video. Well, Josephine was getting a taste of the celebrity life. She was also becoming fashion forward. When snakeskin was a new trend circulating in Paris, Josephine didn't realize that a snakeskin was not a live reptile. So she bought a real snake and she named it Kiki and she would wear it as a necklace. When she'd start to dance, the snake would wake up and stick out its tongue. Josephine loved animals, 
which isn't surprising, right? When you consider that she had uh, Tiny Tim, the, uh, the rooster, she had the puppies. Now she's got this uh, snake named Kiki. And she says that they're simple and uncomplicated as babies. Paul Davis, who was the director of the music hall, Follies Berger, had seen a performance and invited Josephine to join their show for the following season. Josephine signed a contract, but did not tell Caroline that she was going to leave the review. Josephine then toured Europe with the review as Follies Berger created a show for their new star. So much was invested in Josephine being their star on multiple sets, a cast of 500 performing, 1,200 costumes, and a music budget of $500,000. This was 100 years ago, pretty much. That's crazy. That's a lot investment. Uh, once Davis had heard of the speculation that Josephine wouldn't be coming back to Follies Berger, even though there was a signed contract, she was able to negotiate a full salary of $5,000 a month. She's a savvy woman. She has been able to increase her pay faster than anybody. There that, was even a signed contract and she still was able to renegotiate that. Yeah, brilliant. In 1926, the show opened. Josephine was high energy during rehearsals, but also a handful for Davis. She had unpredictable mood swings. Sometimes she showed up at last minute. Sometimes Davis had to switch sets around because Josephine wasn't there. Another time she was supposed to go on stage, he found her sitting on the floor in her dressing room, naked and eating a lobster with her finger. Very strange behavior for the star of the show. Did she just become a prima donna? I don't know if she just became a prima donna or, or if there was just a lot of pressure because these are grueling hours she has to work. Right, but she was also very... Um, I don't know, kind of eclectic and weird. Her dressing room was full of animals. She had dogs, cats, rabbits, and her boa constrictor, and a baby tiger. The famous banana costume was actually from La Folie du Jour. Laverne Cox, Miley Cyrus, and of course Beyonce wore replicas of this costume. Beyonce wore it in a tribute performance to Josephine. And you can find the actual performance video from Josephine in this costume on YouTube. Josephine took off with endorsement deals, pomades, perfumes, cocktails, swimsuits, dolls clad in banana costumes. At 20, she was lucky in her career, but unlucky in love. Superstar. This is like I, the first big star to have like merch. Right. A doll? Yeah. A doll in the, in the banana costume. She started an affair with the owner of a large automobile company, Marcel Below. He showered her with gifts and she wanted to marry him and have his baby conveniently forgetting that she was still technically married to Willie Baker back in America. Right. She gets attached pretty quickly, but she just left him in the dust. I forgot about that. Yeah. She decided she wanted to follow this, this troop around New York. Yeah. Marcel had told her in his blunt words, she was not his social equal and she was black. Okay. Well, so much for that relationship. That's heartbreaking. She had casual relationships with Ada Smith, who was also a singer. This relationship would last throughout their lives. She met Giuseppe Pepito Abentino, who was a 37-year-old Italian bricklayer who created a fictional life for himself. He changed his name to the Count and faked a royal life. He would become her manager and her lover. Did she know that this guy was a fraud? She knew he was an Italian bricklayer, right? She didn't think he was actually the Count? She... We're going to find this out. Okay. So Pepito suggested that she no longer frequent other clubs, and they found a wealthy doctor to invest in Shea Josephine. Shea Josephine is like a new club that they're creating? Yes. Awesome. She started a second show with Folly Vigier, Un Vint de Folie. Her popularity was declining. An influx of Americans were coming to Paris, and prejudice was infiltrating. What does that mean when Follies Berger has this second show? Is that kind of like how Cirque du Soleil has different yes. traveling shows? Okay. Yes. And each one has a different performer and a different gimmick that will bring you in. Neat. Yeah. That's actually a good analogy. One night, Josephine had been refused a hotel room because of the color of her skin and might offend American patrons. Of course, Americans. While struggling with the social decline and the racism infiltrating Paris, she had also learned her youngest sister got pregnant and died attempting to terminate the pregnancy. Pepito and her announced that they got married, and though the marriage was a phony, they were hoping to capitalize on the royal title at taboo sales. Reporters soon realized that the marriage was a sham and there was no actual title. So she was in on the whole sham. 
She was in on it. Wow. Her contract with Follies was coming to an end, so Pepito arranged for her to do a 25-country tour around Europe and South America. That is huge. Yes. 25 countries. First stop, Vienna, Austria. They weren't very welcoming to her presence. Posters were hung calling her the Black Devil. A petition circulated not allowing her to perform. Church bells rang when she arrived by trains and protesters lined the streets. These events triggered her from when she was 11 years old during the boxcar riots. The theater refused to let her perform, so Pepito booked her at a smaller one. She changed up her routine and opened her act up with a high neck dress and sang a spiritual song, Pretty Little Baby. Then getting into more provocative numbers of her show. It worked, and the Viennese people loved her and accepted her. In Budapest, Hungary, militants threw ammonia bombs on stage during her show. They resented her for making money in her country that battled widespread poverty. In Stockholm, Sweden, the crown prince had attended her show. While they were traveling, Pepito had enrolled her in etiquette lessons. She learned to speak and read French, as well as she read English. She returned to Paris refined. The Great Depression swept across America, and Josephine was in Paris and just purchased a mansion. She had signed a contract for Casino de Paris and starred in a show named Swinging Paris. Casino de Paris already had a star, a 54-year-old woman who went by the name of Miss Tonguet. It created a rivalry between the two women, and the club man- manager, Henry Varna, believed the rivalry would lead to sales. Wow. Exploiting them. Right? Wanting them to fight because it would create some, some ticket sales. Miss Tonguet went out of her way to make things difficult for Josephine even going as far as calling her a racial slur at a movie premiere and creating a public altercation. Henry gifted Josephine a pet cheetah named Chiquita, who would perform with her on stage. Sometimes Chiquita would leap into the orchestra pit, adding excitement to the show. Chiquita adorned a $20,000 diamond necklace and had collars to match Josephine's outfit. $20,000 diamond collar. That's like, that kind of money is unfathomable for somebody that, had her first job making three dollars an hour and now her, not an hour like a week that's right not an hour <laughs> three dollars a week was it a week or a day i think it was, it a, was week. a week it was a week and now she's she has a cheetah wearing a twenty thousand dollar collar i don't even think that paris hilton's chihuahua has a collar worth twenty thousand bucks i don't think paris hilton has a chihuahua anymore <laughs> oh i'm sorry to hear <laughs> but also let's bring it back to chiquita yeah so I like to think that Shakita was a nod to Josephine's infamous banana costume, but it's not. Shakita banana premiered and was trademarked in 1947. I didn't even make the connection between Shakita and bananas, mm-hmm. but okay. Another random banana fact, Pepito had stickers made and put on bananas advertising Josephine's movie role in Zuzu, but the blue stickers you find on the bananas didn't appear till 1963. All these connections. Right? Nice sleuthing. <laughs> well, hey, well, you looked up the Stormy Daniels porn. <laughs> I'll hey, look up bananas. Just trying to do my part. <laughs> You're doing a great job, Connor. While on torque, Chiquita had jumped the wall to the mansion and ended up in an elderly woman's bedroom. The Chiquita was taken to a zoo and Josephine couldn't get the big cat back. She visited Chiquita, but eventually the visit stopped. I tried to form, find more information on Chiquita, but I couldn't find anything else. Oh, how sad. I don't know what happened. I don't know what year Chiquita died. Yeah. Nothing. Well, Josephine was the first black woman to star in a major motion picture, Zuzu. She also became the most successful American entertainer working in France. Ernest Hemingway called her the most sensational woman anyone ever saw, and the author spent hours talking with her in Paris bars. Picasso drew paintings depicting her alluring beauty. With her show, her tours, and her endorsement deals, Josephine was named the richest black woman in the world by age 26. Well, Josephine started becoming more of a homebody than a night owl. She was longing to have a child, and she'd visit St. Charles Orphanage, and she'd donate furs, jewelry, knickknacks, so that the orphanage could sell them and make enough money to take the kids to the ocean. She built the playground with swings and slides at the orphanage, and every Christmas, she'd have a party for the orphans and give each one a gift. That's so That's just... Isn't that something? But that, that's so generous and so kind. And like, I just, I'm just, I, I can't even find the words right now as I struggle with just how touched I am by by her. Well, for somebody her. who grew up like so poor to now have 
to be make the sure richest woman in the world. Is it the world? Yep. The richest woman in the world. I guess she kind of had that maternal instinct to take care of all these orphans. At least make sure that they had a Christmas. That's so, I mean, honorable. Yeah. Pepito had negotiated a tour across America and Josephine would be the first black woman to appear in Ziegfeld Follies. Upon arriving in New York, the hotel they were supposed to check into refused to allow Josephine to check in, afraid that she might offend their Southern guests. Okay, so this woman's an international celebrity. Mm-hmm. Richest woman of color in the world. Yeah. Okay. She had said at one point in her career, you know, friends, that I do not lie to you when I tell you that I have walked into palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. And that made me mad. Of course. That makes me mad. Yeah, that's that's kind of what we were talking about, how the same way that she went from the United States to kind of that freedom of being in Paris and seeing that black people are treated as equals, to return to her home country after being an international superstar and not be able to get a cup of coffee is crazy. Pepito checked into the hotel, and that just destroyed Josephine emotionally. So he, she can't get into the hotel, but he checks in anyways. Right, knowing that she wouldn't be able to accompany him. I would be heartbroken. What's he thinking? This is a man that I married, essentially. But... Yeah, where does he think she's going to go? I don't think he was even thinking of that at the moment. On top of Pepito, the critics were tough on Josephine. The New York Times saying Josephine Baker had become a presence who is who brings her presence, but no talent. Yikes. The Follies was the worst failure of Josephine's life. On top of this, Pepito fell ill and returned to France. Good riddance, kind of, right? Ooh, we will wait. Okay. When the Follies lead star fell ill, Josephine and other cast members were given the option of terminating their contracts or given a stipend and waiting for the show to return. Josephine decided to terminate and refused to ever discuss the worst disappointment in her life. She then learned Pepito had died of renal cancer and left everything he had to Josephine. Josephine returned to Paris and she took a job again at Follies. And although it was a step backwards, she needed a job. She also no longer had Pepito to negotiate her contracts for her. And Josephine was growing lonely and really wanted a family. But men would bed her, but never marry her because of the color of her skin. Yikes. Can't even imagine how tough that must be on her emotionally to meet people that would want to sleep with her. And then like, that's it. It just seems like she can't have it all. She has this successful career and she has money and she has this great heart and she, and all she wants is children. And she, she can't even find a man who will accept her for the color of her skin. It's like, really? Yet, well, just wait, because then she meets a 27 year old sugar broker He's wealthy, handsome, and Jewish. His name was Jean Lyon, and because of his faith, he had experienced his share of prejudice too. Josephine's skin color wasn't a factor for him, but his parents were horrified at the relationship. But because of Josephine's popularity, she would be an asset to Jean's political career. The two married five months later. Though with the difficulty of their schedules, Josephine got pregnant, and just like before, she started to knit. Tragically, she miscarried, and not long after, Jean and Josephine had separated. So another trauma and another heartbreak. Wow, just when we thought things were getting good. Right. Just when we thought she was she was getting that happy ending. She found the guy, yeah. During the separation, World War II was spreading around Europe. Josephine was Jewish and Black, two groups that the Nazis persecuted. France and Britain declared war on Germany, because of their attacks on Poland. Was Josephine Jewish? Did she convert? She converted. Okay. And then they separated. And then they separated. She, she kept the Judaism, huh? Mm-hmm. The French had expected Germany to cross their borders, but for nine months, nothing had happened. Soldiers were sitting around waiting for entertainment. Henry, from the casino, created a show, Paris, London, and opened the show for the soldiers. Around this time, Jacques Epte 
head of military counterintelligence in Paris, was looking for people who were allowed to move freely around the countries. Jacques wasn't interested at first in Josephine, worried she'd be another Matahari. But as Germany was moving closer to Paris, people started fleeing. When Germany captured Paris, 700,000 had stayed out of the 5 million people who populated the town. My goodness. Josephine left. She had rented an estate 300 miles south and prepared to flee by storing gasoline in champagne bottles because she knew none would be available. She packed what she could along with her maids, a Belgian refugee couple, and three dogs and escaped to her rented estate. Josephine had recognized that the Nazis were waging a racist war and she had waited a long time to fight against racism. She had said her love and loyalty belonged to France, so Jacques invited her to become a spy. So weird to become a spy when everyone knows you, but I think that became an asset in this case. That did. Everyone knew Josephine. Her connections and popularity made her the perfect cover to collect information. She accepted invitations to numerous diplomatic functions, and she was able to gather information about German troop movement and activities, whether it be at land or sea. Meanwhile, Jacques had classified documents to get to Portugal, which was neutral territory. German soldiers had shown up at Josephine's chateau, to investigate a report that she was hiding weapons at her home. She wasn't hiding weapons, so she was hiding resistance fighters, and she was able to charm the soldiers into believing that she had nothing. But this certainly spooked Josephine. Jacques enlisted the help of the free French effort led by General Charles de Gaulle. He had supplied them with visas to Lisbon. As an entertainer, Baker had an excuse for moving around Europe, visiting neutral nations such as Portugal, as well as some in South America. She carried information for transmission to England, German troop concentration camps in the west of France. Notes were written in invisible ink on Baker's sheet music. In Portugal, she moved from ambassador to ambassador, collecting information in the resistance. She would then make careful notes on slips of paper, and then she would pin them to her underwear. When word spread that Germany would soon occupy all of France, she left France and even sent for some of her pets three monkeys, her great Dane Bonzo, two white mice, and a hamster. She believed bringing her animals would help her with her cover of espionage. It kind of does. It just makes her seem like a f- crazy uh, celebrity traveler, like a Bringing, the bringing her animals. I mean, I can understand her dog and her three monkeys, but two white mice and a hamster? I would lose those. Yeah, <laughs> the mon- You're right. The monkeys are pretty good pets. In 1941, she went to the French colonies in North Africa. And from a base in Algiers, she then moved to Casablanca in Morocco. From North Africa, she made tours of Spain, and from Spain to Portugal, and she would perform for audiences. She pinned notes with the information she gathered inside of her underwear, hoping that her celebrity status would avoid her a strip search. She returned to Morocco, and she experienced a miscarriage, the last of many. After the miscarriage, she developed an infection so severe that it required a hysterectomy. The infection spread and she developed peritonitis and then sepsis. Scar tissue had created intestinal blockage and she'd undergo even more surgeries. Josephine had entered the hospital in June 1941 and didn't leave until December 1942. Her hospital room became a place where ambassadors, supporters of the resistance, and American diplomats would discuss the war and the anticipated entry of the United States. December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, ending the speculation. Italy, Germany, Hungary, and Bulgaria all declared war on the United States. Because Josephine hadn't been seen for 18 months, the United Press International had announced that she was dead. In Chicago, Langston Hughes had written her obituary. Meanwhile, Josephine heard of her death while relaxing in a palace bordering North Africa and the Sahara Desert. Relaxing on pillows under trees, she said, I'm too busy to die. Great mentality. Josephine was on the men when American soldiers arrived in Casablanca. Their arrival gave her the boost she needed. Segregation was still happening in the military. This segregation was leading to tensions between the whites and the black GIs. The Red Cross opened a liberty club, which allowed whites and blacks to attend, but just at separate times. They asked Josephine to perform for the soldiers, and even though she was still recovering from multiple surgeries and a parathyroid illness, unhealed scars, and difficulty standing, she did. She performed multiple times a day for two and a half years, traveling across North Africa in a jeep and a truck and sleeping on the ground near the vehicles to avoid landmines and eating only what they could carry, which was often canned tuna fish. Ugh. 
Right, and she's recovering from a lot of surgeries. She often came in close contact with Black Americans, even though 5 million Black Americans were serving in the Army, only 5% were in combat units. What were the rest doing? Most were served as cooks, food servers, construction workers. Josephine promised Black American soldiers that when the war was over, she would return to her native country and help fight segregation. We've got to show the Blacks and whites are treated equally in the army. Otherwise, what's the point of waging war on Hitler? She was quoted. But with every soldier she observed, their enthusiasm, she mourned their deaths to come. Josephine gave a benefit concert to the French forces in Algiers during winter 1943. She was awarded a Croix de Lorraine, the Cross of Lorraine, that she cherished the most of all of her jewels. She donated it to be auctioned off in an effort to raise funds for the Free French Forces, and because of her fundraising donations, she was the honorary rank of lieutenant in the Ladies' Auxiliary of the French Air Force. Shortly after, on June 6, 1944, Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy after more than four years of the Nazi occupation of Paris. Paris was liberated on August 22, 1944. German commander General Dietrich von Koltzitz ignored orders by Adolf Hitler to blow up landmarks and burn the city to the ground. Instead, Dietrich signed a ceasefire agreement with General Charles de Gaulle, who led Josephine and the free troops. Two months later, Josephine got to wear her uniform for the first time as she marched down Champs-Élysées as Paris citizens cheered and tossed her flowers. How exciting. Yeah. To she be... got to wear a uniform. She got to march. People were praising her. She's a hero. She really is. There's some very famous uh, footage of uh, the uh, Allied forces going down Champs-Élysées in, in Paris. So it must have been really cool for her to be a part of that. I've seen some pictures of her, and when this podcast drops, I'll definitely post those. Okay, yeah. Uh, shortly after moving back to her chateau just outside of Paris, Josephine had met Jo Bouillon, a 41-year-old orchestra leader from a French musical family. You notice that her uh, boyfriends are getting older and older. As she's getting older, too. Yeah, but these guys are much older. She married Joe on her 41st birthday. I guess she is older. This guy is 41 also. Yeah, she's, she's found her equal. Yeah. She married Joe on her 41st birthday, wearing a two-piece suit and a pink feather straw hat. Pepito's sister attended to support Josephine all the way from Italy. She sold her chateau outside of Paris and an apartment in Paris, and she bought a large estate that she could use to raise children. After 12 years, Josephine decided to come back to America to perform stage shows. This time, the shows were geared towards what she was wearing and not what she wasn't. Drift in Jewels, the show had police guards off stage while the, she wore the jewels on stage. The show flopped. Josephine returned to St. Louis, convinced her mother, surviving sister, and her sister's husband, Elmo, to live with her in Paris. Four years later, her brother Richard would join them. However, before she left, she was invited to speak at Fisk University, which is an all-Black university in Nashville, Tennessee. She discussed the racial equalities in North Africa and in France, and compared it to traveling in the South and how she had to travel incognito. The students responded well to Josephine, and this inspired her to do more public speaking. Josephine was sincere in her desire to end racial segregation within the United States. She supported Willie McGee, who was accused of raping a white woman in her bed next to her sleeping daughter. Yeesh. Well, McGee was charged with the assault. It was reported that he had made an oral confession shortly after his arrest, the confession was attested to by the county attorney and other members of the local political power structure. McGee and his supporters would later argue that any such confession was made under duress. Such forced confessions were common in the Jim Crow legal system of the time. Unsuccessful in stopping his execution, Josephine had paid for the burial and stayed with Willie's wife until Willie had passed. In Philadelphia, she met face-to-face -face with heads of major corporations urging them to hire black workers. Challenging their thoughts that black drivers weren't qualified, arguing that in World War II, African-Americans were driving buses. She has a point. She does. Unsuccessful in her attempt, but still a hero nevertheless, the NAACP appreciated her efforts by declaring May 20th, 1951, Josephine Baker Day in Harlem. In Georgia, she had a speaking engagement for the NAACP, but three hotels refused her reservation. These incidents exposed the Georgia law that stated if a black person requests a room and was accommodated, the hotel could lose its license. The richest woman of color can't even get a hotel room. That's crazy. 
And this is like not even like ancient, ancient history. This is like no. in our grandparents' lifetime. Right. The negative press caused Josephine's speaking engagement to be canceled, and Josephine started receiving threats from the KKK. She spoke openly about the threats, saying she wasn't afraid of the KKK. Josephine had made charges of racism against Sherman Billingley's store club in Manhattan, where she had been refused service. She accused Walter Winchell, who at the time was a powerful journalist and had a standing reservation for not intervening. The NAACP protested, and an irate Winchell wrote a scathing article about Josephine being a communist, a fascist, and found a 16-year-old article where she praised Benito Mussolini before World War II. Josephine lost scheduled appearances because of these accusations and losing the opportunity of becoming an American icon. I think she is an icon, though. Well, of course she is now. She has her place in history, for sure. I just don't think the country was ready for the extraordinary woman that she is. No. They were just judging her by the color of her skin. Things didn't go well for Josephine in America. Her show had flopped, and now she was labeled a fascist. Before she started her tour in South America, she stopped in Cuba hoping that Fulgencia Batista, who was the current dictator for the small country and also half black himself, would join her on her crusade for the Brotherhood. She was unaware of Cuba's history of racial discrimination. She was refused hotel rooms from two large hotels in the country, the radio station she was supposed to sing at, the entrances were barred by the police. While she was performing in a club in Havana, the police raided her hotel room. She was arrested for supporting communism, fingerprinted, and they assigned Josephine a criminal number of 000492. The Cuban police tried to get her to sign a confession that she was a communist, only to claim later that her arrest was a mistake and then let her go. What a mistake. Right? Here, sign this confession. Oh, I'm sorry. We screwed up. What evidence did they have that she was a communist anyway? She was fighting against communism in World War II. Because of what the guy had written before. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, she did publish an, uh, uh, an essay or something that uh, supported Mussolini. Before the, the war, she did. And that came back to backfire because of the incident that happened at the club before. That's right. She finished her tour headed back to France, Joe and Josephine thought it was time to start their family. Josephine wanted to adopt her rainbow tribe in hopes to prove that all races and nationalities could live together. First, she adopted Aiko. He was an 18-month-old Korean child who had been abandoned by his mother, probably because his father was an American soldier. Leaving the orphanage, she spotted an infant named Tairu. She adopted him too and renamed him Jana. She neglected to tell her husband of the second child, just stepped off the train in Paris and surprised him. Next, she adopted a Scandinavian boy named Jari. In Colombia, a mother approached her asking for her to take the youngest of her eight children because she couldn't afford to feed him. So Josephine adopted Gustavio. She adopted a Parisian boy named Jean-Claude from a French orphanage, and then she adopted Moise, a Jewish boy from France. I love this idea of her rainbow tribe. That's so cool. Right. And she also would assign them different religions. She assigns them the religions. Yes. Each one, it was a different religion. Wow. That is certainly a rainbow tribe. So now Josephine has six kids, the oldest being only four years old. In 1956, she went to North Africa to perform, and she ended up adopting two babies, a boy and a girl that were found under rubble after an airstrike in the town called Palestro. The two were not related. She named the girl Marianne and the boy Brahim. Her husband Joe was furious. Josephine was spending way too much money. Joe took up a musical career again to ensure financial stability, but newspapers were reporting of the couple splitting. Joe and Josephine split. Joe stayed in Paris for a bit and then eventually moved to Argentina and opened up a French restaurant. Josephine then adopted a Venezuelan boy and named him Mara. That year in Paris, a child was found in a dumpster. Josephine had heard of the baby and rushed to the hospital to claim him, thus adopting baby child number 10. Noel. Josephine adopted her second girl, Stalina, who was born in France from a Moroccan mother. Josephine was still working as she was accumulating debt, feeding her rainbow tribe. Over the course of 10 years, she had lost 1.5 million and racked up 400K in debt. She had to pawn jewelry and the diamond collar she had for Chiquita to keep a roof over her head. How sad. That $20,000 collar for for her cheetah. Right. She was attached to her to the cheetah at one point and was visiting her. And then she lost the cheetah because the cheetah escaped. And now the memento. 
Yeah, and how many people are in the market for a twenty thousand dollar collar for a cheetah? You would think that um, she probably didn't get very much for it. Oh, I wish I could answer that question, but in 1963, Josephine was invited to Washington to attend a civil rights march. However, American officials refused to issue her a visa because of her words she had said years before in Argentina. She appealed her decision to the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who overruled the objection and issued a visa. She had um, gone to Argentina right after Ava Perón's death and had um, said some nice things, not understanding what was going on in Argentina and how it was her, how Ava Perón's husband wasn't that great of a guy, mm -hmm. but he was putting on this facade that they were these saviors and she had said great things and then it backfired when she realized it wasn't true. So saying something positive about another nation is enough to get you kind of blacklisted from our country. Mm-hmm. Wearing her French military uniform and World War II medals, Baker was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with Martin Luther King as he delivered his famed I Have a Dream speech. Wow. Right? Ama this woman I just amazes me. She, she delivered a two-and-a-half-minute speech and later that night performed a charity concert at Carnegie Hall. Josephine was struggling financially, but maintained booking performances. Oh, that's great that she's still able to kind of thrive here. She lost her home in Paris, and then Princess Grace of Monaco, upon learning that Josephine and her children were essentially homeless, had arranged for the Monacan Red Cross to give her $20,000 down on a $100,000 villa in Monte Carlo. She also made arrangements for a guaranteed mortgage so Josephine wouldn't have to worry about being evicted. At 69 years old, Josephine arranged to hold a special celebration for the Monacan Red Cross celebrating her 50 years in the business. Josephine appeared in costumes representing her lifetime performances. She sang 34 songs and 15 scenes. It was a success. The next afternoon, Josephine had taken a nap. During the nap, she drifted into a coma caused by a stroke surrounded by newspapers praising her performance of the night before. Josephine had died at the hospital two days later. Cause of death, cerebral hemorrhage. Since Josephine was a decorated war hero, she received a full military burial. The Paris streets filled with 20,000 mourners. The church where the funeral was at could only hold 3,000 people. Flashbulbs popped, making it seem less like a funeral and more like a movie premiere. Princess Grace paid for a second funeral for the family to hold a somber memorial. Josephine was laid inside a sanctuary, usually reserved for royalty, and then moved to a mausoleum until space could be found in Monte Carlo. Yeah, Josephine's life began as a poor girl who escaped the slums of St. Louis to become the first woman to perform in the first black musicals in America. She conquered France, served her adoptive country France during World War II, and she adopted her rainbow tribe. She traveled throughout Europe and South America, meeting with royalty, diplomats, and ambassadors. She was once named the richest black woman in the world, only to be homeless. Pablo Picasso insisted on painting her, and Ernest Hemingway called her the most sensational woman anybody ever saw. So, Connor, yeah. if they were to make a movie of Josephine Baker's life now, who do you think would be a good person to play her? That's a good question. There actually was a movie that they made about her life in the 90s, and she was played by Lynn Whitfield. Who's a very beautiful woman. Yeah, I'm trying to think who I would want to play her today. I'd have to say maybe Halle Berry. Oh, see, I was going to go with Rihanna. Okay. I could, I could see that too. I, w I would give the Rihanna with the, the singing and the dancing. Yeah. 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 Either either one of them. Yeah, you're right. I guess we would want somebody who's got, uh, you know, a triple threat singing, dancing, and acting. Triple threats are taking over. Sure. If you like our episodes this month, we suggest supporting Equal Justice Initiative. EJI works with communities that have been marginalized by poverty and discouraged by unequal treatment. They are committed to changing the narrative about the race in America. The link to that charity will be in our show notes. Check us out on Instagram at Madams Hose and Gigolos. If you like the subject, go ahead and drop a comment on this post and tell us something that you learned. If you have a topic or suggestion, feel free to send it to us and please subscribe to our podcast for more just like it. Leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening.